יום רביעי אנגלית, שיעור 179, שעה שנייה, חולדת שמשון, דוקטור יעל ציגו. אוקיי, גוד מורנינג. גוד מורנינג. I'm Yael Ziegler. Welcome to the Yimeyun. Uh, we'll open this class by dedicating the Limud Torah that we do today to the well-being of the soldiers and the healing of the um, the Shlema of those who are wounded and, of course, the memory of those who have fallen. Um, I think that uh, many of us here feel that we can't do very much for the war effort, but we can learn Torah, and that's, I think, certainly something that is a positive uh, act during this very difficult time. Um, my topic today is the unnamed mother, the story of Shimshon's birth. And that, that's going to, uh, we're going to be focused. Oh, and, and I've been asked to ask everybody to please turn off their cell phones if you have not yet done so. Okay. Um, the subject of today's class is Parak Yud Gimel in Sefer Shoftim, chapter 13 in the book of Judges. This is the story not of Shimshon, but it's the background to the Shimshon story. It's the story of Shimshon's parents. And we're going to be uh, engaged in a close reading of this story. So we'll have to open the Tanakhs already to Parak Yud Gimel. Uh, the, the story of Shimshon's parents, uh, who are known as uh, Manoach and Mrs. Manoach, right? She is the wife of. But actually, in a rather witty quip, uh, Rev. Breuer was ac- accustomed to referring to Manoach as the husband of the wife of Manoach. Uh, and that, that, that point, I think, will become clearer as we progress through this chapter. Right, for the present, I think that we'll note, based on this quip, that the nameless wife is a far more significant character in this chapter than her named husband. Right? And that's really uh, what we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to open our class today with the basic question that presents itself in this chapter, which is, why doesn't Mrs. Manoach get a name, especially considering her dominant role in the chapter. Um, and to try to get to the bottom of this, we're going to read through the chapter. We're going to try to understand also, and primarily perhaps, uh, how this impacts on the story of Shimshon. In order to uh, understand the story, I'm going to start with the context of the story. This story, even though it's only in chapter 13, it takes place really at the end of the, the period of the judges. He's the last judge, Shimshon. Right? And after this, we really deteriorate into a terribly chaotic period, a period of civil war, a period of religious and social deterioration. Uh, but we've been seeing throughout the book of Judges a terrible deterioration uh, in Am Yisrael. There's terrible social deterioration. In, in the previous story, which is the story of Yiftach, we have a civil war that leaves 42,000 Ephraimites dead. Right? This, is, this is indicative of a very problematic situation, uh, and that's the context of the birth of Shimshon. Religiously, God in chapter 10 seems to wash his hands of the Jewish nation. He says, don't cry out to me anymore. Don't pray to me anymore. I'm not available for you. You've betrayed me one too many times. And of course, in terms of leadership, right? the book of Judges is a book of leadership, and the quality of the leaders from the beginning of the book of Judges until this point when we're about to uh, encounter our final leader in the book, the quality of the leaders seems to have steadily declined, right? Each leader is increasingly focused on his own sort of uh, sectarian and oftentimes even personal interests. Centralized leadership is practically non-existent at this point, right? And, and the book of Judges really sees this decline in leadership. There doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of hope. And to compound the problem, the plishtim have arrived, okay? Now, the plishtim we know are emigrants, from the Greek islands. Um, it's, a, it's a great mystery why they emigrate at this time, but they do indeed immigrate at this time. And they are fierce fighters who are searching for a homeland. And so all of these problems, the social problems, the religious problems, the, prob- the military problems, the problem of leadership means that Am Yisrael is in desperate need of a leader, a, a powerful leader, one who can unite the people, one who can return them to God, one who can mobilize the people to fight this impending and really existential threat of the plishtim. Okay, so that's the background of the Shimshon story. And uh, actually, this parak, which occurs, this chapter, chapter 13, which occurs in the midst of all this chaos and decline that is characteristic of the book of Judges, uh, presents us with this unexpected, 
optimistic and exciting story filled with anticipation, filled with a certain uh, um, optimism that we, we actually didn't, we didn't expect at this time. This is the story of an angel who appears out of nowhere to promise a nameless, barren woman a child, but not just any child, an extraordinary child, one who is born with divinely mandated responsibilities, one who is a Nazarite, right, from in utero. He is already told that he has some sort of uh, divine destiny and elevated religious status. He is immediately identified by anyone who comes into contact with him as a Nazarite, which means that he's very clearly meant to be seen as a religious leader. And, of course, he is given a divine destiny, which is military in nature, right? He will begin to save Abishal from the Plishtim. The very fact that we have this, uh, this, this angel that comes at this moment in Sefer Shoftim, when things have been uh, declining for so long, I think is meant to provide us with a certain sense of hope. And, of course, that child who is meant to actualize that hope is Shimshon. So it will transpire that Shimshon is the last hope of Sefer Shoftim. Don't forget, he's from the tribe of Dan, right? And Dan is, um, is, is, is always the me'asef, right? He's the rear guard. He's the one who picks up all the pieces when all else fails, primarily when Yehuda fails, which I think really is the background of Sefer Shoftim, is the failure of Yehuda to set up kingship, to set up proper leadership when Yehuda fails. And Yehuda, of course, is the vanguard. So then we have to rely on Dan, who is the rear guard. And that's Shimshon. He's our last judge. He's our last hope. Um, now, I'm going to jump to the end of the Shimshon story just so that we have a sense of, 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 of the, the trajectory of the story. And I'm going to um, suggest that it's a negative trajectory. And that is that in the final analysis, what, what I want to uh, uh, show you is that despite all of the potential for greatness and the hope, and I think maybe even the expectation after this very extraordinary story of this angelic divine being that appears in order to tell of the, 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 uh, this, this uh, great potential of, of good leadership, um, the hope that Shimshon will turn this period around, it doesn't work, right? Shimshon's the last judge in the book. He's also pretty much the last leader in the book. And after the, I mean, aside from the fact that most of what Shimshon does during his lifetime is to spend time with different Philistine women, right? He has three women in the story, right? And this is a, a, a terribly troubling to Chazal. It's, it's troubling to any reader of the story. He, he doesn't really seem to save the people from the Plishtim. I mean, he does certain acts of vengeance which cause momentary disarray amongst the Plishtim. But when we pick up our story in Shmuel Aleph Perak Dalid, we're going to see that the Plishtim are just scattered throughout the land. There's been no real um, uh, um, achievement. Okay, this is arguable. Some will say maybe Shimshon did have some sort of military impact. But in any case, in terms of the book, the, the, the story of Shimshon leaves us floundering. It doesn't take us anywhere out of the negative trajectory of the book of Shoftim. Ultimately, Shimshon's demise leaves Am Yisrael <clears throat> devoid of leadership, which sends them really, I think, uh, uh, spiraling precipitously downward into a chaotic period of civil war. Okay, that's the end of Shimshon. He's our last leader before we get to the period of leaderlessness. Okay, so there's a, there's a certain amount, uh, a fair amount of conflicting opinions regarding wherein lies Shimshon's success if at all. But I want to uh, just point out to you Rashbam here in source number one, who offers, I think, a rather scathing evaluation of Shimshon. I, I, I tend to agree with his general direction. Not everyone does, right? As I said, Chazal are somewhat conflicted. There's no argument that after Shimshon, we have a terrible leaderless period in which everything really falls apart. But the question is, of course, how much uh, blame do we pin on Shimshon for that? In any case, look at what Rashbam says here. This is, of course, a comment on Yaakov's bracha to the tribe of Dan, right? Dan Yadin Amo. And I'll just give you as a background to the Rashbam's comment, Rashi mentions, Rashi uh, suggests that this bracha is specifically um, uh, 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 anticipating Shimshon, who is our great figure from the tribe of Dan. And so Rashi says, Dan Yadin Amo, 
That's talking about Shimshon, who of course becomes a Shofet, who is Yadin Amo. Look at what the Rashbam says, and let's keep in mind that the Rashbam is Rashi's grandson. Dan Yadin Amo, Hamifaresh al Shimshon, Lo Yada Beomek Pshuto Shel Mikra Klal. He says, anyone who says that this is talking about Shimshon doesn't know how to read properly the story. And here's what he says. He says, Did Yaakov come to prophesy? He doesn't even talk here about Shimshon's uh, actual acts in his life, his actual experiences with the different women in his life. He simply talks about the end. He says, could it be that Yaakov is offering this great prophecy about a man whose ultimate uh, destiny is to fall in the hands of the plishtim and they blind him, they they poke out his eyes and he dies with the plishtim in a very bad state. Chalila, chalila. And here again, the Rashbam uh, seems to sort of gloss over the, the, the bringing the house down at the end and the killing of 3,000 plishtim. But again, I mean, I think that the general uh, uh, direction that he's going in is one that I think actually seems to be indicated uh, by the story. Um, so according to the Rashbam, Shimshon's promising start, which is the story that is devoted to the oracle, the, the, the telling of his birth, is not much of a success. And, and I want to start by asking the question, what went wrong? Right? This is a very long story that tells of the background of Shimshon's birth. Until we actually meet Shimshon, it takes 24 psukim. Right? And so the background must be significant. We don't have that many stories of that are so detailed in terms of the actual uh, birth of anyone in Tanakh. We have several birth stories, but this, this is really the most detailed one, aside perhaps from Chana, which we'll be talking about in a, in a few minutes. And the story of Shmuel's birth and the barren woman Chana reminds us very strongly of this story. And, and really just, I mean, I think even just the length of the story and how much detail goes into the telling of the background of the story and the parents of this miracle child, of this, uh, this child who was born to this barren woman is uh, itself significant. Okay, so let's look into this story and see if we can understand what goes wrong. Perak Yudgimel, Pasuk Bet. Here we meet, Vahi ish echad mitzora mimishpachat ad-dani, ushmo manoach. Okay, there's this one man. He is from Tzora. He's from a city. He's from a tribe. He's from the family of Dan. And he has a name, right? This is a man who is rooted. He's connected. Look at how his wife is introduced. Ishto, right, who doesn't have a name. And she doesn't even really seem to have an identity of her own, right? She is wife of. And the only thing that we're told about her is she is Akara. She is barren. Not only does she have no roots, she also has no future, right? She has no city, she has no tribe. A chazal fix all this, right? But and this is this is the, the way in which the text presents her. She is introduced, her essence is that she is barren, okay? She has no continuity and she has no future. And by the way, uh, this introduction itself, and actually the very formula of the introduction reminds us very strongly of the introduction to the Chana story. I'm going to keep pointing that out as we go along because this is really, I think, going to be key to understanding what goes wrong in our story is also seeing what goes right in the story of Chana. But just to give you a little bit of a sense, look at the first Pasuk of Shmuel Aleph. It introduces once again a man with the words, Vahi Ish Echad. We're told where he's from. Min HaRamataim Tsofim Ushmo Elkanah, right? Velo hayu, right? And he has two wives, right? And Chana, of course, is his barren wife. It's almost the same exact formula of introduction. We're introduced to a man who has a wife. This wife does have a name. Of course, Chana does have a name. And that, again, is going to be critical to understanding the difference between the success of Chana, who, of course, brings about a child that does turn around the trajectory, the negative trajectory of lack of leadership in the period of the Shoftim. She brings about the birth of Shmuel, who anoints both first kings, thereby taking us out of the period of the Shoftim, and of course, um, uh, Eshet Manoach, who does not succeed in raising a child who's able to do this. Right? So right away we get a sense of the comparison. Actually, though, I'll mention one other point, and that is that this story has an even broader context. Right? It's not just the comparison between Eshet Manoach and uh, Chana that I think that we have to point out, and that, but that is that uh, we have many, many stories of barren women in Tanakh. 
Right? They're not all exactly the same, but actually perhaps one of the most uh, distinguishing features of women and stories about women in the Tanakh stories is that many, many, many of them, I would even venture to say most of our detailed stories tend to focus on the barren woman who is trying to birth a child. So we're talking about Sarah, we're talking about Rivka, we're talking about Rachel. The Midrash also adds Leah, right? Leah only has a child because God sees that she is hated. Vayiftach et Rachma, right? And he opens her womb. We're talking about Isha Manoach, we're talking about Chana, we're talking about the Isha Mishunem in Malachim Bet Perak Dalid, right? One might even claim that Ruth, who is never actually described as barren, but that's also a search, a quest for a child. That's also the goal of her story. Um, now, we're, we're going to continue talking about some of the um, the themes and the features of the barren women's story and how that particularly comes into play in our story. But I just want to mention the, the most famous idea, I think the one that many of us are familiar with, Chazal are searching for some sort of reason for these barren women's stories. Actually, what's interesting is that unlike many ancient Near, East, Near Eastern texts, barrenness in Tanakh is not regarded as a punishment. It's not regarded as something which is the fault of the, wom- the women, right? And actually, the Tanakh offers no explanation for barrenness, with the one exception of Michal, right? You remember? Michal, ain't love lada diomota. She's the only exception, and she doesn't seem to be actually barren. The, the punishment seems to be that she has no child with David. But in general, there's no explanation. The Midrash says as follows, is a well-known Midrash, look here in source number two, the lamanit akru ha'imahot. Why were the mothers uh, barren? Rabbi Levi, Mishum, Rabbi Shila, Dekfar, Tamrata, Rabbi Chabo, B'Shem, Rabbi Yochanan, Shakarash Baruch Hu mitavel etzchilatan, umitavel etzichatan, shenemar yonati v'chagvei asel yonati v'chagvei, lama akarti etchem, bishvil harini et maraich, hashmiini et kolech. Right? Why does God make them barren? Because he desires their prayers. In other words, he doesn't intend to keep them barren, but that he wants to develop a relationship with these women in which the women recognize that childbirth is directly related to their relationship with God. I don't want to get uh, uh, too deeply into these details. We're going to go back to this point afterwards, but uh, um, I do want to make one point based on that midrash, and that is that if, in fact, the purpose of making these women barren is that they should uh, turn to God with their requests for children, then immediately we note that this is not the case in the story of Eshet Manoach, right? She does not pray. She doesn't pray for a child. She doesn't pray at all, okay? Not at any point during the story. That's going to be in contrast to her husband, who is going to pray in the story. He is going to uh, turn to God in the story. She never prays. And that's, of course, I think, a question that emerges even without the Midrash, but perhaps even more strongly after we encounter this Midrash. Now, uh, the wife of Manoach's silence is particularly interesting when we look at the preceding Pasuk, Pasuk Aleph, which I skipped when we started our reading. Let's look for a minute in Pasuk Aleph. Here we're told one of those, you know, sort of um, uh, formulaic Sukim in Sefer Shoftim, which brings us right back into that cycle of sin, punishment, crying out to God, and God saves them a savior that we have throughout Sefer Shoftim. So let's look at what this Pasuk tells us. Vayosifu b'nei Yisrael asel tara Adonai, vayitneim Adonai biad plishtim arbaim shana. I mentioned there are four components to the cycle of Sefer Shoftim. The first is sin. We have that, right? Vayosifu b'nei Yisrael asel tara. Then there's punishment. We have that too. Vayitneim Hashem biad plishtim arbaim shana. Our next phase is supposed to be Zaka, crying out. There's no crying out here, right? The people are silent also. There's a problem of prayer, okay? The, the problem is finding the, 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 the way to address God, okay? There's a problem of prayer at this time. Perhaps the barren woman is some sort of microcosm of the barren people, the inability to pray. And uh, perhaps she's, perhaps one might even suggest something else, and that is that God is trying to get this woman to speak to him so that she can teach the people how to engage in prayer with God. Okay, but here we have something that I think is really very uh, much missing here. Uh, we have no idea how she feels about her barrenness. She expresses no anguish. She expresses no desire to resolve her problem of infertility. And uh, an uh, angel, in the next, very next passage, an angel is going to appear uninvited and, and unexpectedly to give her an oracle of 
her miraculous birth. Okay, so let's look in, uh, or her son's miraculous birth. Let's look in Pesuk Gimel, right? Vayera Malach Adonai El Haisha. This angel of God appears to the woman. Vayomerila Hinena At Akara Veloyaladit Veharit Veyaladit Ben. Right? He says, you are barren, you have not had a child, and you are going to, uh, you're going to become, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a son. Vata. And now, he tells her what his son, what her son is meant to be. And this is one of the distinguishing features of miracle conception. And that is, of course, that the barren woman has a child. That child has a reason for being born, a divine destiny, as it were. Okay, now, I just want to uh, make one point. The, Barbanel is going to note that specifically here, that a child who is born in a miraculous way is born with a divine destiny. Okay, I, I want to, though, make one broader point, and that is that this is true about every child, right? And, and I think that it's not just that, but I think that every woman is a barren woman, right? The, the Barbanel makes this point in Shmuel Parakid Gimel. He says, every child who is born, every woman who conceives, that is a miracle. That is because of God's divine intervention. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we have so many stories that describe the, 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 the process of birth as a process of miracles, of God's direct intervention. Um, and the Barbanel says this, as I said, very explicitly. In uh, I didn't bring the comment for you here. It's a very short comment in Shemot Parakid Gimel. He says, every woman until she gives birth is barren. And that is why the first child is called Peter Rechem, right? That's his comment there on uh, Peter Rechem, okay? So um, that means, of course, something else, which is that every child who is born is born with a divine destiny because every child who is born is born as a direct product of God's will, of God's desire to bring that child into the world. Okay, so this is, I think, perhaps heightened and magnified in the stories which describe to us the anguish of the barren women, but I think it might have uh, consequences for, uh, for for every birth. Okay, so let's look at what the divine destiny of this child is. Okay, so we are told here very explicitly this child's going to be a Nazir. You yourself, he says to the woman, have to be very careful not to ingest any uh, wine products, any grape products during the period of your uh, of your pregnancy because this child is going to be from in utero a Nazir. And also, you will never cut his hair. And all of this leads us to the point of his birth, which is that he will begin to save Israel from the Plishim. She knows very explicitly why this child is being brought into the world. The rest of us may be looking to facilitate our ch- children's destiny with a little bit less precision, right? But that is certainly, I think, the idea of the parental role vis-a-vis this child who has come into the world at uh, uh, as a result of God's direct intervention. Let's just look for one minute at source number three, this Abarbanel here, the Abarbanel notes uh, very explicitly this theme in the barren uh, women's stories. The purpose of this divine oracle was to tell the woman that her conception and her birth will be miraculous. So that the son will know this. Afterwards, the Yaskil Mimotsadavar, the Ten Elibo, Shehukleme Eta Elohim. And he will understand from his origins, and he will place in his heart that he is a vessel that comes from God. And that he is a vehicle of God's will, and he should know that he will be successful in this task. Right? And this is, I think, uh, a point that has uh, very uh, broad implications. Um, this leads me, though, to one other question, this whole section here, um, and perhaps we'll read just the first few words of Pasuk uh, uh, Vav, just to get a sense of the question. Look at look at what the um, what the woman does. Isha v'tomer li'isha le'mor isha Elohim ba elai. I'm going to stop there. Right, the woman comes and she tells her husband, saying, "A man of God came to me." And that, of course, begs the question: Why did the man of God come to her and not? 
to her husband or even to both of them, right? All options are open, right? Sometimes God tells Abraham that Sarah's going to get, have a child, right? Sometimes, uh, God might send a divine oracle to the woman, right? Like we have with Rifka, right? So here again, I mean, I think that, uh, the, the question as to why the angel particularly comes to the wife here is an important question. And, uh, Chazal examined this question, right? We, we see it comes up in several different contexts. So if you look here in source number four in the Midrash in Bemidbar Rabbah, let's just read these last two lines. Look at the fourth word on the second to last line or third to last line, really. Mikan Right, from here we learn that she's a righteous woman. Right, within the context of this Midrash, she and her husband were having an argument about who was the cause of the infertility. But that's, that's a, not, not necessarily our topic here. But the point is, is that the Midrash says that she gets this vision because she's the tzadeket here. He wanted to tell her that it is her uh, uh, physiological problem, and therefore he came to her. So this is, again, I mean, I'm not necessarily going to go in this direction, but what I want you to see here is that the Midrash is actually intrigued by the problem of the, the angel coming to her and not to him. Uh, the Abarbanel adds, I think, a very uh, noteworthy point. The Abarbanel says, well, I mean, keep in mind that the instructions are for her to carry out, right? Only she can ensure what she ingests during the period of the pregnancy, and therefore it, it's just logical, pragmatically, he has to speak to her to make sure that she carries out the instructions properly. Um, but the Abarbanel adds a, a, a second point. I didn't bring this first point. The Abarbanel adds a second point that I want to bring to your attention. Look at what he says here in source number five. This, this is his second point. He says, "Hatam malach el manoach uva el haisha elav yoter muchenet Right? He says she's just wiser, right? She's smarter than him, and so she is the only one who can really carry out the instructions properly and facilitate her child's divine destiny. Okay, and I am going to go in that direction. I think that that the, the text suggests very, very, very strongly that direction. I think it's going to be really the key to understanding uh, the, the this story. In my mind, the entire chapter is about drawing a contrast between. Eshet Manoach and Manoach, and not always to the detriment of Manoach, but we'll continue ex- examining this as we go on. Let's just see what she says to her, hus- to her husband. Right? She comes to tell her husband of the extraordinary event of this angel appearing to her. I want to see what she says to him. And I, I want to offer one tool that we often use when we are... Uh, when we're engaged in close literary readings of the Tanakh, um, uh, scholars have taught us, among them, Nechama Leibowitz was very uh, interested in, in, in this, uh, that we have to carefully note deviations, right? And if somebody is repeating what they experience, and we also had a description of their experience, we have to see where they deviate ever so slightly from their description of that experience. So we're going to see that in a moment. Let's just uh, note one more thing, and that is, look in Pesach Vava, Tavai Isha, Vatomer Leisha. It's what's what's uh, I think also very striking here is that she does not react to the angel, right? Nothing, not thank you, not an expression of delight, right? Not an expression of consternation, not an expression of disbelief, not falling on her face, nothing, nothing at all, right? She's absolutely unmoved by this news. And this is, uh, this is amazing news. Right? She is barren and, you know, so she gets this vision or this, this person comes to her. Nothing. She is unmoved. She actually walks very placidly to her husband. There's no uh, description of a tarot. It's what's in my hair. There's no excitement. Absolutely none. Okay. That, that I think is, is also uh, critical here and, and, and very curious, right? And look at what she says to her husband in Pasuk Vav. This is a very long description of the encounter. Look at what she says. She says, first of all, a man of God came to me. And she doesn't really know who he is. She does not call him a malach. She calls him an ishalokim, presumably because he has some sort of divine word for her, right? But look at then what she says. She says something really uh, astute, right? She says, umarehu how does she know that? Right? She says, well, you know, he sort of looked like an angel of God. 
Now, there hasn't been an angel of God in Sefer Shoftim since Perak Bet. Okay, uh, we are we're, we're we're lacking angelic beings. Right? She, she has a certain sense. She has a certain intuitive sense. She's extremely intuitive, and particularly, I think she senses the divine presence. She has a certain intuitive um, sense of the numinous. Right? She's she's experiencing something that she that she she immediately senses is significant and divine. Look at that. What she then says: No me'od. Right? Again, the word nora is very awesome, which is, again, uh, um, uh, indicates that she understands that this is not a natural being. Right? And, and, and it impacts upon her response to him. She now says, right? Because I was so overwhelmed by him, and this might explain also her lack of response, although it still doesn't explain why she doesn't fall on her face or express some sort of joy or anything, but still she explains. She says, I didn't ask him where he was from. He didn't tell me his name. That's very important, right? Because we know, of course, Malachim, they don't get names, right? Certainly not until uh, the period of Shivat Zion, right? Uh, much later, uh, Daniel, right? So here we have um, this description of her response to her intuitive understanding that this is an, an angelic being. And now she tells her husband what he said to her. Vayomerli, hinachara violadit ben. All good so far, right? You are going to conceive and have a son. Okay, what does she skip? What does she change? And what does she add? Right, those are really, I think, that's really critical for understanding who she is and how she's absorbing this news and why she's absorbing the news in, in, in the way that she does. So the first thing that we'll note is that she leaves out the hair, Right? No razor on his head. She leaves that out. She also leaves out, let's just say, the most important part, and that is the divine destiny of the child. That's extraordinary. She doesn't tell her husband, She doesn't tell her husband he's born for a purpose. She tells him he's going to be a Nazarite from in utero. Right? But she does not tell him his divine destiny. And remember, the Barbanel noted that this is the very essence of the miraculous child's birth. The miraculous child is born into a divine destiny. We're going to see that Manoach understands that and he senses that she's left something out, okay? Which indeed she has. It's really, I, I think, very extraordinary. Now, um, many, many, many Mepharshim try to understand this, right? This is, seems to be either a mistake or a deliberate omission. I'm going to go with deliberate omission, right? I'm not inclined to, uh, to, to assume that such a wise and, and, and I think, uh, intuitive character doesn't, uh, simply forgot to mention the most important part of the angel's, uh, oracle. Uh, but there are several different ways to, to understand why she leaves it out. The Barbanel, for example, says she leaves out the mis- mission because she's, she's afraid that word would get back to the plishtim and they would then kill her. I think it's a little unlikely. I mean, she's having a private conversation with her husband. I mean, we all know leaks happen. That's true. But, um, but, but I mean, this seems to be a, a little bit, in, in my mind, unlikely. Uh, the Al-Sheikh says something interesting. Al-Sheikh says that uh, she only tells her husband um, the, the things that she can carry out and that he cannot. And that's out of respect for her husband. And she wants to perhaps a little bit soften the blow that the angel came to her and not to him. And so she only tells him the instructions that were meant specifically for her in order to suggest it's not, it's not that he didn't want to come to you. It's that he had to tell me certain things. So she leaves out anything that the husband could have been involved in, whether it's the cutting of the hair, which obviously is something that happens post-birth, or the facilitation of the child's divine destiny. That's an interesting approach, and it certainly, it certainly is possible. Um, and I want to suggest something else, and that's based on one addition that she adds in her words, which he didn't say. And I don't know if any of you noted, what is it? What does she add here? Ad yom moto. And this is really, I think, uh, uh, a very peculiar thing to say. And she's being given an oracle of her child's birth, and she's anticipating his death. Right? Who talks about a child's death at their birth? Right? I mean, and yeah, he's not even born yet. Right? She's being told you're going to conceive this child. He's going to be extraordinary. He's going to have all these, uh, you know, all this this tremendous destiny to fulfill. And she's saying, well, yeah, then he's going to die. Right. And that's really, I think, very, very, um, uh, very, very, very peculiar. Why is she so concerned with his death 
at the outset. Right? She could have said ad olam. That's also fine, right? She, there are other things that she could have said. She did not specifically have to allude to his to his death. And there is something I think ominous in um, in these words. The Barbanel picks up on the fact that her words are ominous. He's not going to explain it the way that I do. But he, uh, the Barbanel says that she's he's she's trying to scare Manoach. Uh, into fulfilling the conditions of his birth, right? You know, she's sort of suggesting that if we don't do it right, he's going to come to a sorry end. Um, again, I mean, I think the Barbanel is picking up on something literary that is very significant. Uh, I think that we sense already that the fear of his birth, her, her sort of reluctance to bring this child into the world, she's not entirely comfortable with the news of her son's birth and mission. She imagines that his death is somehow connected to his miraculous birth. Um, and, and perhaps I'll just um, uh, suggest that this may uh, connect to a larger theme in the barren women stories in Tanakh, and that is that, as I said, the, the miraculous child that is born, and, and I think that it's really just a, 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 every child that is born has a divine destiny. And this divine destiny on some level also relates to the parent's ability and willingness to relinquish the child to their divine destiny, right? And we see that in many of the stories of the of the miraculous child who is born. Maybe the most extreme example is Akedat Yitzchak, right? It's also the most extreme miracle, right? We have this 89-year-old woman and this 99-year-old man who have this miraculous child. And I think that she senses that relinquishing this child ultimately is something that is uh, uh, negative or dangerous or something that she is unwilling to commit herself to. Um, certainly, I would, I, would, uh, I would compare this to the story of Hannah, who is absolutely aware that the birth of this child is connected to a divine destiny, which involves her relinquishing the child to service of God. That's, of course, not his death, right? I think Hannah understands perhaps a little bit more deeply what maybe Eshet Manoach is really very uh, uh, frightened of, is really very reluctant about. Because if we, re- if we recall, uh, when, when Hannah uh, turns to God and prays to God and she, she makes this vow, and she says, if you give me this child, I will give him back to you. Hashem kol chayav. Right, that's the opposite of adyom moto, right? And so here again, we see something that uh, Hannah does explicitly that we sense that Eshet Manoach is unwilling to do because she sees uh, this as, as, as being something that is negative. There's a lot to say about this topic. If, if I had more time, I would take you to the story of the Isha Mishunem in Malachim Bet Perk Dalid and try to read some peculiarities in that story on the basis of this background. So I'm going to leave that to, your, uh, to you to do on your own. But uh, I want to get back to the story of Mrs. Manoach. She seems to be very afraid of having this miracle child. She anticipates a negative consequence uh, to having a child who's born with a divine destiny and senses not only that she'll have to relinquish him, but that there are going to be negative uh, consequences of this relinquishment. And here I see um, Eshet Manoach's failure. She, first of all, I think doesn't understand what Hannah understands, and that is that she can relinquish him without that being something that has negative consequences. Um, and of course, she, uh, what, what, what I really want to suggest here is that Aisha Manach here is uh, deliberately ignoring his divine destiny. She would rather not have a child with a divine destiny, and therefore she leaves it out. Okay, so uh, this, I, I'm just going to uh, um, maybe get to one answer that we opened, uh, we opened this year with a question, and I want to I answer this uh, at this point, and that is that um, many, many, many readers of this story struggle with the question of why Eshet Manach doesn't have a name, right? That's how we opened the shiur. Um, and, um, and, and I think that this is very clear, right? At least based on uh, the theory that I'm proposing here, and that is that uh, someone who doesn't fulfill their destiny in Tanakh, someone who uh, shies away from their destiny, loses their name. Okay, and I think that that is uh, a, a, almost a punitive action that is taken against Eshet Manoach, who chooses to not fulfill her destiny. And that's what I want to show you um, a little bit more, a little bit um, as we progress. And, and I think that, uh, that, that this also is, is ultimately going to take us in the direction of maybe Shimshon's failure as opposed to Shmuel's success. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's uh, um, uh, continue reading here. At this moment, I want to turn back to get a sense of Manoach, 
Who is Manoach? We've already said that the Abarbanel has suggested that he is less wise than his wife. We haven't met him yet, so we don't really know. But let's look at his first words. Vayatar Manoach el Adonai. Vayomar. Bi Adonai. Ish Elohim asher shalachta. Yavona od elenu. Vyorenu manase lanar hayulad. Okay, um, this is, uh, I'll just translate this. Manoach davens to God and he says, please, my master, this man of God that you sent, let him come again to us and let him inform us what is to be done with this child who is born. This is, this is extraordinary, right? Manoach here, and some people sometimes read this as a certain degree of skepticism on the part of Manoach. Did this angel really come to my wife? I, I don't think that, that, that that's the case. And there's something perhaps ironic about the words, Ode Elenu, let him come again to us, which seems to cast perhaps a little bit of a foolish light on Manoach. But that having been said, I think Manoach emerges here as an extremely righteous character. Right? He prays. That's the first thing he does. He turns to God in prayer. And what is the prayer? What is the content of his, his prayer? It's what should we do with the child? You're telling me that the child's going to be born after, you know, this, this, this period of barrenness. This is a child who was born miraculously. I want to know what's the child's divine destiny. How can I facilitate the child's divine destiny? And so if this is really the correct reading of this verse, so the Manoch emerges as a tzaddik, right? He's very righteous here. All he wants to do is the right thing, right? He wants to pray to God and he wants to uh, facilitate the child's divine destiny. Both of those things, I said, Mrs. Manoch was not interested in. She didn't pray to God and she left out the child's divine destiny, which is what forces her husband to ask the question. And yet, I want to say one more thing about Manoch's prayer. And that is that, uh, even though, and the, the other thing about his prayer is that he expresses, I think, a certain readiness to carry out the child's divine destiny, which is also, I think, uh, very important. But uh, th- there's something else about his prayer, which is that he seems to pray for the wrong thing. Now, I mean, it's the right thing on some level, but let's put it a little bit of a different way. He prays in the wrong direction, right? The answer to his query lies not in prayer, but in turning to his wife, right? That's real. She's the one who has that information. He doesn't ask her, and instead he turns to God. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it suggests that Manach is not intuitively aware of what he's missing, right? Is it maybe he could have sensed that, of course his wife got that oracle of a divine destiny. Why doesn't he ask her? And, and the reason I'm saying this, I don't think I would say this if it were not for the continuation of the story, which consistently portrays Manoach as missing the mark. He's just going to keep asking for the wrong thing and seeing the wrong thing and misunderstanding. And here he has his wife standing right next to him, who is the bearer of the news. Why doesn't he ask her, what did the angel say to you about the child's divine destiny? Okay, so perhaps this is what leads us to the rather well-known Gemara, um, Gemara's characterization of Manoach in Erevin. Look in source number six, Manoach Am that's rather scathing. He is ignorant. He never even learned to read. Okay, so that's at perhaps the most um, uh, uh, scathing critique of Manoach that I could imagine. Again, they're pointing to a certain um, obtuseness that we are going to keep seeing throughout the story with regard to Manoach. And let's see how God answers Manoach's tefillah, which I think is also very interesting. Okay, just in case you missed it, right? God listens to the voice of Manoach, and the angel of God comes again to the woman, right? So the, the angel comes again to the woman because she had never come to Manoch to begin with and she is alone in the field and Manoch is not with her, right? Uh, this, I think, is, is really uh, very pointed. The, uh, the, the, the sense that God answers Manoch's uh, request is obviously, it's only a partial answer, right? The angel returns, but very, very pointedly, not to Manoch, and, and particularly to his wife when Manoch is not there, as if to say, this oracle is not for you. Okay. Now, at this point, um, 
We have uh, uh, the woman running home. Here we have a lot of intensity and rapid action, which indicates to us that she's quite capable of rapid action, which we didn't see previously. Right? She obviously uh, um, is a little bit concerned with her husband's reaction to the fact that the angel comes again to her. So let's read Sukim Yudin Yud Aleph. Vatimahera Isha, Vatarots, Vatageli Isha, Vatomer Elav, Hinein Yerai, Elaya Isha, Sherbav, Ayom Eli. She says Eli twice. She runs and she rushes and she goes to her husband and she says, the man came to me again. Again, the one who came to me before, right? So she goes and she gets Manoach. And look at this next pasuk. Vayakom vayelech Manoach acharei ishto. Okay, this also the Midrash um, uh, makes a big deal about it. This seems to indicate that she is the leader, right? He goes after her. And by the way, there's an interesting um, uh, Gemara which, uh, which, which, which reads um, uh, this pasuk into the story of Elkanah and Hanah which doesn't appear there. But they actually cite the story as saying, Vayelech Elkanah Acharei Ishto. Right? In other words, that there's a similar kind of sense in the two stories that uh, the woman in the story is the predominant one, the facilitator, the one who is more capable of bringing the story to its, uh, to its, to its uh, conclusion. Okay. From this point forward, Manoch is going to take center stage in the story and she's going to recede to the background. Okay, this is, uh, he, he's going to speak, he's going to initiate, it's going to be a very long conversation between him and this angel, but we're going to see that what is emphasized, of course, is his lack of intuition, his lack of knowledge. Let's see what happens here. He comes to the man, and he says to him, Right, he doesn't even call him an Isha Okim. He certainly doesn't call him Malach. Right? He says, are you the man who spoke to the woman? Vayomer Ani. He says, I am. Right? We know in Tanakh, there is no affirmative. There's no word ken. There's no word that's the affirmative. If you want to answer in the affirmative, you answer uh, uh, the, the question. You use the word from the question. You say, Ani, I am. Right? Vayomer Manoach. And Manoach said, Ata, yavod varecha. And now, it's what you say should come true. Again, it's the same question. It's a wonderful question, right? He says, what will be the ways of the boy? What will be his actions? How am I supposed to help this child to fulfill the reason for which he was born? Okay, he repeats it twice, right? It's actually the, the what we call the inclusio, the envelope of his words, the, the envelope structure of his words. He opens and closes with whatever I told the woman, right? What I told her—that's that's what that's what you should know, right? Anything else um, is not is not relevant here. And uh, the other, I think, important point, and she, he certainly emphasizes the woman. She's the one who has been designated here, the facilitator of the child's destiny, not Manoach. That's the reason I came to her to begin with, right? That cer- certainly seems to be what he's suggesting. And of course, the other important point is that he certainly agrees with the woman's omissions, right? He does not uh, mention the hair. He does not mention and he only tells Manoch about things that he cannot do. Right? He really leaves Manoch entirely um, uh, uninvolved in the raising of this child. And this time he also leaves out his Nazarite status. Right? He doesn't even tell him he's going to be a Nazir. Right? He certainly doesn't tell him, and you can't cut the hair of his head. Because again, we mentioned that's something that in fact uh, he can be involved in. Right? Manoch could be involved in making sure the child doesn't get a haircut after he's born. He leaves that out. Um, and here he says, that what I commanded the woman. Okay. Um, again, the question is, why not? Manoch seems so righteous. Right? He seems so desiring of bringing about his child's divine destiny. So let, let's try to explain by, why not by reading through, uh, we'll try to read through quickly the next few psukim. Right? So the Manoch says, uh, let me detain you and I will make for you a nice 
meal. Okay, which again, I mean, you know, anybody who knows sort of elementary um, uh, facts about angels knows that he's not going to eat, which just indicates to us that he does not know that he's an angel, right? As opposed to the wife who immediately sensed what is the, 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 the what, what type of character is standing uh, um, beside me and what, how does that actually affect my reaction to that, um, to, to the angel. Instead, of course, Manach offers the angel food. Look at what the Malach says. Malach Adonai el Manach. Im tatsreni lo ochal belachmecha. Vim tase ola la Adonai talena. Kilo yada Manach. Kimalach Adonai hu. Okay, just in case we, we missed it. And note also that the Pasuk describes an angel of God speaking to him. In other words, he speaks as an angel. The content of his words are entirely the content of the words of an angel. And what does he say? He says, if you will detain me, I will not eat. And if you want to make an Allah, if you want to, you know, to burn the, 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 the sacrifice totally, so do that. That's a good idea, right? But then the Pasuk goes out of its way to tell us, Manoach, did not know that this is an angel. Okay. He says, what's your name? That's, of course, the opposite of what Eishat Manach, she says. She says, he didn't tell me his name. And, of course, the, obviously, she didn't ask him his name because she understood that he's an angel. But even after the words of the angel to Manach, Still, Manoach says, what's your name so that when your word comes true, we can honor you. Okay, there's a, this also may reflect a certain skepticism um, on his part. You know, why doesn't he just honor him today if he believes that his words are true? Of course, this reminds us of Yaakov, right? Why are you asking me my name? And it is wondrous. Okay, so he's very, very strongly hinting. Okay, so the, the angel comes and he starts doing these wondrous acts and suddenly Manoach and his wife, who's been in the background the whole time, we haven't seen her at all, they are both Watching. And I think that this description of Manach v'ishto ro'im is meant also to emphasize the divide, right? They're seeing very different things. She's seeing what she knows to be the acts of an angel, and we're going to see in a moment, Manach still doesn't know that he's looking at an angelic being. And, and the angel is doing, he's maflila, so I don't know exactly what that means. He's doing some sort of wondrous thing with this korban. Okay, it probably relates to Pasukkaf. And it was when the fire goes up from the altar of Shemaima. The Malach Hashem goes up with the fire to heaven. He disappears. Umanach v'ishto ro'im. Once again, Manoach v'ishto, they're watching together, but very, very separately. They both fall on their face. And this, and this Malach Hashem never again appeared to Manoach and his wife. As yada Manoach. As yada Manoach ki Malach Adonai hu. Okay, and now we get to the uh, the moment that finally, after all this, right, there's been so many stages here, right? From the moment that he spoke to Manoch, Manoch could have, perhaps should have, sensed that he was talking to a divine being. He did not, of course, unlike his wife. Um, and not only that, but, you know, he, he, he offers him food, and the, the, the Malach says, no, I can't take food. He asks him his name, and the Malach says, no, no, I don't have a name. It's too wondrous. He starts doing Maflila so He disappears in the Lahav. All of this does not uh, give Manoach the, the, the enough information to be certain that this is a divine being. Only when he didn't see something, that's when he finally knew that that was a divine being. Now look at the Barbanel here. Um, did I bring in this Abarbanel? Yeah, look at the Abarbanel here in source number seven. Ulafisha mevaer hazeh remez heyotom malach lakach odia sipor ki lo yadam manach ki malach Hashemu. Because the point of what the angel said was in order that he should extrapolate from that, that in fact this is an angelic being, therefore the Pasuk goes out of its way to tell us he still did not know Okay, 
Okay, so this might be a little overly harsh, but I think that's sort of the, consistently the picture that is emerging here, um, that, that, that is emerging throughout, is that Manoch really is not very wise, or he certainly is not very intuitive, okay? Now I want to, um, uh, well, perhaps let's just read a few more uh, sentences and we'll get even more of an even more strong sense of the characterization here that's going on between Manoch and his wife, and then we're going to see some conclusions. Okay, so let's look here in Pasuk Kavbet, what does Manoch extrapolate from knowing that he has now come into contact with an angel? Right, now we're going to die. We have seen God. Now, by the way, this is a sort of common, um, uh, a common uh, uh, reaction, right? It's, 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 it's scary to, to, to meet God. And look at what his wife, though, says. His wife's response, once again, I think highlights the peculiar um, uh, role that Mrs. Manoch plays vis-a-vis her husband. Look at what she says. Right? After deliberately sidelining herself throughout the story, when called upon, she answers, I think, with wisdom, with confidence, with a certain deep sense of why, what is going on here. And she says, if God had wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have shown us all of this, and he wouldn't have come to us, and he wouldn't have given us an oracle of the child's divine birth. It makes no sense. And so her conclusion, of course, is entirely correct. Why would God bother to send them this oracle twice with all of these great details if in the end they were going to die as a result of having seen, um, of having seen this divine being? And so once again, um, her response highlights her um, superior wisdom, right? Her her deeper understanding. Um, now let's just look at this last pasuk, pasuk of Dalid, vatele daisha ben vatikrat shmo shimshon veigdal hanar veivarcheu Adonai. Okay, so once again, she names him. She is the one who is going to determine his destiny, right? The one who names the child in Tanakh is the one who is going to determine the child's destiny. Sometimes it's the mother, sometimes it's the father. Rarely it's God. Sometimes God actually names a child, right? Like with Yitzchak or with Yishmael, right? So who names a child? In, in, intriguingly, of course, in the Gilat root, it's the neighbors that name the child, right? And so we get a sense that the Davidic dynasty, the, his, their destiny is, uh, um, is designed by the people, right? It's formed by the people. In any case, here, of course, she names him and, um, and, and she is the one who has the power to fulfill his destiny. Manoch disappears from the Pasuk. He leaves his wife to name the child. That's, I think, of great consequence. It's of great significance. But there's also something else that I want to point out here, and that is that she offers no etymological explanation for his name. Right? Why is he called Shimshon? We're sort of used to hearing, and therefore he will do something, right? He will be the Shemesh. She will be the, the dawn of the new era. Right? Something, right? She doesn't, right? There's no etymological explanation for his name, which I think is maybe a little bit consistent which, with what we've been seeing about her, and that is that she is actually not particularly interested in facilitating his divine destiny. Now, the goal of, of this chapter, as I said before, in my mind, is really drawing a contrast between Manoch and his wife, and I think I, I, think that I want to sum up the, the, the characterization that is offered by this chapter. I think that Manoch, who tries to pray who searches for his son's destiny and yet has no intuitive sense of the divine presence, is righteous but not particularly wise. I think that his wife, who does not pray, uh, tries to avoid her son's divine destiny over and over and yet has an intuitive sense of the divine presence, is wise but not particularly righteous. Right, so here we have these two opposite characters, um, and, and and really the story here is is um, is the question is is who can help Shimshon fulfill his divine destiny? Uh, and the answer, of course, is the mother. Uh, will she do so? And the answer seems to be no. Right, she is going to remain silent. We're going to see that in one moment. I just want to point out several uh, um, key words that we have in this chapter. The verb ra'a is a key word in the chapter. As in verb form, it appears seven times. Seven times is always a key word. The word Allah is a key word in the chapter. appears seven times, right? The, the, the question, of course, is sight in Tanakh is always insight. 
Who, who has sight here? Manoach ve'ishto ro'im. But we know who really sees here, right? She's the one who sees and she's the one who can teach her son to see, right? The question, of course, is will we be able to make this upward movement from this spiritual decline that we've seen throughout the book of Judges, right? Who is going to lead us upwards as a leader? And that, of course, once again, the answer is, is she can lead him upwards. Who will teach Shimshon to understand, to be intuitive, to seek his destiny and a deeper understanding of the events in his life? Only his mother can. The question is, Will she? Um, and now we get to the, what I think is the denouement of the story, right? The end of the Manoach and his wife story. They're going to disappear from the story. Eventually, Shimshon's going to have to take responsibility for his own actions. But this background, I think, gives us a sense of the initial failure of Shimshon. And the first thing that we see in Shimshon's life, and let's look here in Parakudalid, Pasuk Aleph. First of all, the word Vayered. Right, that's, that's problematic, right? Vayered Shimshon Timnata. Shimshon goes down to Timna. Vayari Shabbat Timnata mi benot plishtim. He sees a girl in Timna from the doors of the plishtim. Vayaal, and he comes up again. Vayaged la vivulimo. Vayomer, isha raiti bit Timnata. You see those words there? The ri'ah, the sight, the downward, the upward, right? This is what we're playing with here based on the last chapter. Is he going to move up or is he going to move down? Is he going to use his sight in order to understand deeply his divine destiny or is he not? Well, for the present, he's just seeing this uh, woman from Benot Plishtim and he says to his father and his mother, Take her for me as a wife. Now, there's really only one person who has uh, the ability to uh, to inform Shimshon what's wrong with this plan. And that's the one who knows that his divine destiny is mm-hmm. Now, even if she says you could still go marry him, because in a minute we're going to see that God's plan may involve his marrying a plishti so as to undermine them. But he has to tell him that, right? He has to be informed in order to know that that is his divine destiny. And so at this moment, we are waiting for his mother to speak. She's the only one that has the tools to tell him what he needs to hear right now. She must say to him now, she's shown, I've been waiting a long time. I had a divine oracle at your birth and I've never revealed it to anyone before. You are not meant to marry the plishtim. You are meant to undermine them. You are meant to fight them or you're meant to use this marriage in order to fight them. And look at what happens in Pasuk Gimel. Vayomerlo aviv ve'imo. You see that? It's the singular form that modifies the father, but she is included in his words. Okay, so the father speaks, and what we hear here is her glaring silence. And the father and mother said to him in singular form, Can't you find a nice Jewish girl? Okay, so here, of course, uh, the father, once again, in his role, he has nothing really concrete to say to him because he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to facilitate his child's divine destiny. But he knows that he doesn't really want this to happen. And he says what he can say. But her silence is glaring. And all the more so when we note the singular verb which modifies her silence. Okay, um, Why does she not speak? She chooses not to speak. She never tells Shimshon his destiny. And in doing so, on some level, she undermines his ability to fulfill it, maybe even sabotages it. And so she loses her name. Right? She has left her destiny unfulfilled. Shimshon's father cannot teach Shimshon what she can, how to intuit God's presence, how to understand from the events in one life, in one's life, what their destiny is. And of course, the father can't teach Shimshon how to, how to pray properly. The mother chooses not to pray. So how is Shimshon going to learn proper prayer in order to be able to teach it to the people? The mother chooses not to teach Shimshon to see, and the father doesn't see well. So ultimately, of course, the fact that Shimshon's sight is misused over and over in the story, a fact which Chazal say lead to his becoming sightless, which is a midah keneged midah, for his misuse of his sight, that's what happens to Shimshon. Instead of teaching him to move 
upward and to use the events of his birth in order to help him to fulfill his spiritual destiny. She never does. And therefore, we have a series of verbs, the word vayered, 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 which all appear during the course of the Shimshon story. And instead of understanding his God-given strength and intuiting its purpose, Shimshon, at the very outset of his story, dismisses his acts of strength, turns his barehanded victory over a lion into a riddle at a wedding, a piece of wedding feast, entertain, uh, wedding feast entertainment. Uh, now, this is not the, the, the time, obviously, I, I'm running out of time, is not the time to, to fully examine the ups and downs of the Shimshon story. Certainly, I, I mean, you can only blame the mother to, to a certain extent. Um, and, and I think that maybe this gives us a sense of the background of, or the beginning of Shimshon's story. If I were teaching the whole Shimshon story, I would try to show you at what point Shimshon becomes responsible for his own destiny. I'm going to leave that out for now and just um, <clears throat> conclude. I want to turn our attention for a minute to uh, Hana so that we don't end on a negative note because here, of course, uh, Eishet Manoach, in my mind, is a failed Tanakh character. That's why she doesn't get a name and that's why she plunges us only further into the period of decline of Sefer Shoftim. She gives her son a name, but she doesn't give him an explanation for his name, which I think also indicates uh, why she herself doesn't get a name. And the last Pasuk, by the way, of the Shimshon story, he is nameless as well, which is also an intriguing point. You can look there at the end of chapter 16. In order not to end on a negative note, I want to point out that the role of Shimshon's mother has a tikkun, a, a correction, and I think a real, um, uh, a real, uh, a real, uh, um, a real success in the story of Hana, who is of course a barren woman who has a name. We have similar stories of women who have the potential to guide their children, to lead the nation out of the period of the Shoftim, to teach the nation how to pray and how to realize their own divine destiny. And that, of course, starts with Chana. Chana, who not only understands that having children obliges her to facilitate that child's divine destiny, but Chana, who seeks a divine destiny for her child, she's the one who makes the child the Nazir, not an angelic being. She's the one who teaches that child to understand how to fulfill his destiny. She moves him upward toward the Mikdash, right? The word uh, Allah there is, is used there. And of course, Shmuel, Hanab, because she's committed to her future with great passion, she prays and she cares about her destiny. And so Shmuel becomes the prayer, the initiator of the next generation. And Hana keeps her name. I'll conclude with one final general thought that I, I, I uh, mentioned uh, several times in this year, and that is that the theme of barren women in Tanakh is not just focused on barren women. It's not just focused on these specific women and their challenges. I think that it is a general statement on the miraculous nature of childbirth, the nature of childbirth which compels every parent to understand the birth of their children as having taken place because of miraculous divine intervention. And if every child is a product of God's intervention, then like the story of the miracle child born to a barren woman, every child is born to fulfill his or her divine destiny. And we, as the parents of these children, are obligated to help each child to realize their divine destiny, how best to serve God and our nation. Thank you.